Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. I've got Delbert McClinton and a special bonus I'll tell you about in a minute this week. Uh, I'll tell you how this, this interview came to be. And that always seems a natural way to introduce the interviews to sort of talk about how they came to be. But maybe I'm off base here. Maybe no one cares. So, yeah, I don't know. Let me know. It just seems natural to me. Uh, so here's what happened. Publicist said, Delbert McClinton's got a new biography. Would you like to interview him? And I thought about it, and I, there are these records that came out from in the early 60s from Texas, around the Fort Worth area, this band called the Rondells. And I discovered these records just a few years ago. Didn't know they existed, because there's no hits on them. And they're a strange amalgam of kind of that West Texas, you know, kind of Sir, what Sir Doug's sound would become. And they've got a little blues in them, a little country, but... The ones I love the best fuse all of that with a lot of Beatles simply covering uh, the Beatles as closely without being sued almost. You know, someone said, write a song like the Beatles. And these are songs mostly mostly original, mostly written by Delbert McClinton and guys in the band. Uh, and I just discovered these a few years ago, and they just tickled me. I mean, they just spoke perfectly to me. They're just everything I like. They're just slightly off the bullseye, but... You know, trying hard and and in being influenced by all the things I like. So, kind of these genre, what I call the genreless records. You know, just perfect. Uh, so I said, you know, I really only would want to talk to Delbert about this small part of his career, and I bet he's not that interested. Uh, you know, just this radio show just is concentrates on this very small uh, area. So no thanks. And they got back to me again and said, would you please? interview him so i said well i'll do it if it's okay with him if we only talk about this small small part of the career so they checked with him they say and he said yes and uh, so we chatted and of course uh he ended up really not remembering all that much specifically about the making of these records it was 50 plus years ago in some cases and i certainly don't blame him uh you know it's a blip in a long career for him and uh, so it's a little bit lopsided. So uh, I ended up, you know, of course, cutting out. This was recorded in advance. I ended up cutting out uh, all of the sort of less than complete answers or answers that didn't speak to uh, the questions so much. Uh, so what we have left, I think, is pretty good. Uh, it's not that long. It's me and Delbert McClinton chatting about his uh, life growing up in uh, West Texas and uh, how he put the band together and how they made these records and just what the scene was like down there and it's pretty interesting uh he did cross paths with uh bruce chanel uh, he was bruce was as delbert will tell it just kind of came in for one day they'd never met and they cut hey baby in just a short while with uh, that really memorable harmonica part by delbert and so so memorable and hard to duplicate that bruce ended up taking delbert to the uk on his tour uh, because he couldn't duplicate that part without Delbert. So uh, Delbert got to play on some bills with the Beatles and hang out with the Beatles, and you'll hear that story in the Bruce Chanel interview, which is from February 9th, 2008, almost exactly nine years ago. Uh, and I haven't listened to it. And I'll tell you, nine years ago, I was worse at interviewing than I am now. I think I've gotten a little better. Uh, so I, and I haven't listened to this one in nine years, so it may be terrible. But... Uh, there, but, but you're going to have it anyway. It's a bonus. So let's hear Delbert McClinton. He's got a new uh, biography just out. And then we'll hear from Bruce Chanel from 2008. Hope you're well. Hope you don't have the flu. It seems like everybody has it this year. Uh, here's my chat with Delbert McClinton.
All right, there is Delbert McClinton's, well, it's really the uh, the Rondell's song called Tina, all one minute and 58 seconds. Uh, there's a new book out, like I mentioned, called Delbert McClinton, One of the Fortunate Few. And Delbert joins us on the phone this morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I get the idea from talking to you earlier that uh, you don't listen to Tina and songs quite that old too often. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, I know where there's a 45 of Tina uh, buried in, the, in a, a box in my attic, but I haven't thought about that song in, in forever. Well, in 1963, came out on the Shalimar label and then on Dot, so it must have picked up a little bit of heat, right, because it got reissued on Dot. I believe that song was the B-side, uh, and I want to get to all that because, I mean, what, uh, I mean, just when I discovered... Some of those real, because I'd known your stuff and been a fan of your stuff, but I didn't know there was a whole earlier side. And then it's it's all come out on, on CDs a bunch of times. All right, we're going to get to that. You're born 1940, Lubbock, Texas, kicked out of the fifth grade choir. Is that right? <laughs> well, it, yeah, I don't know if it was the fifth or sixth or what, but uh, I, uh, well, it wasn't just me. It was me and a couple of my friends because we couldn't take it seriously. So you couldn't take music seriously? Well, we couldn't take choir seriously. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you say everybody was poor but happy. What was life like? I didn't know we were poor until I was uh, gone. Were your folks musical? Were you, did you have a record player? Did you have a radio? What What was your first... Well, uh, uh, I remember hearing radio was on in our house all the time. And when I was a kid growing up, uh, I heard all that war music, you know, the 40s. It was, I mean, that music was going on all the time. And even today, still, I got serious radio, and it stays on forties junction. Yeah, something that's mentioned in the book that uh, I don't, I don't know what it is. The Harley Sadler tent shows that came by. <laughs> what were those? Well, they uh, they traveled the country back in the forties and fifties. Uh, well, I don't know about the fifties. I don't know how long they were because I moved away from there in fifty one. Harley Sadler was a tent show. It would come to town, and they would be singing, and maybe a little uh, one or two act time to the railroad track, and save them for the train gets there, the <laughs> villa, you know that kind of thing. Really, a simple uh, stage shows. But the thing that I remember most about it, they would throw boxes of taffy candy out into the crowd, and to me. That was about as serious as it got, because uh, nobody ever got free candy. <laughs> and, you know, and just for people to be throwing candy out there, I thought, boy, this is really, really cool. Was this a revival, or was this something that you paid for? Or what no, was it was, it was uh, something you, you paid. To, uh, it cost next to nothing to get in, but it wasn't, it wasn't a gospel thing. It was a show. Hmm. It was a variety show. They'd have somebody singing. They'd a juggler, sometime maybe, or a magician, or. But it was just a a, a little show that uh, would tour. You can look it up. Google Harley Sadler. I will. Uh, you, uh, you're, like you said, your folks moved to Fort Worth, and uh, in the book you say that radio you could hear. Radio from Memphis, Chicago, Nashville, Mexico, and all black stations out of Dallas. And I guess you were a kid uh, who took all that in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, here at late at night at Texas, we get the XERF 
going to Mexico. That was uh, something that you could only really get at night. What records were they playing out of Mexico that you couldn't hear on U.S. stations? They were, they'd were play Bill Monroe one minute, and they'd play Bobby Bland the next, or or, or B.B. King. Or, and they would play these songs and then offer you this package with all songs they played in that hour or segment. You could send off and get all those songs. I was too young to, to be doing that and broke. <laughs> but, but that station was the most powerful station around. You you buy uh, one of your brother's friends' horrible Stella guitar and teach yourself how to play that and have this idea of starting a band. 1954, 55, you're 14, 15, and you are like the perfect candidate because Elvis Presley comes along and Rock Around the Clock is in uh, the movie Blackboard Jungle, which is, you know, and those two things, seeing those two things is what turned the switch on for a lot of people. And for you, I think it was those two Absolutely. things. And also hearing Big Joe Turner, you sort of put all those pieces together right around then, right? Yeah, well, they all kind of happened at the same time, almost, you know. It was just such an awakening. Uh, I can remember uh, going to the midnight movie to see Blackboard Jungle. And that was about as far out as somebody my age at that time could get, you know, going to a midnight movie. And it was packed to the ceiling. When that song, Rock Around the Clock, started, I've never heard such a thunderous applause and screaming. And I was one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you can't imagine what it was like, because now we take it for granted. But at that point, it really was uh, the earth shaking. It absolutely. It absolutely was. So you sort of became obsessed with music, uh you're playing some amateur nights, some kind of open mic kind of things, uh, and you start your, your first band uh, called the Straight Jackets. And this 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 band becomes the house band at uh, a place called Jack's, right? And right. You, you guys are backing up uh, folks who come there who don't have their own band. So what kind of, who did you back up? Oh, we backed up Big Joe Turner. We backed up uh, Jimmy Reed a lot, uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, uh, Magic Slim, Later on, Freddie King. These guys are some serious guys, and you were young teenagers, and I assume everybody in your band was, was white guys. What yeah. did they say when they would walk in the door and see you guys? Well, they were glad to see us because we knew their songs. We couldn't get enough of, of those guys, you know. I learned to play harmonica from, from Sonny Boy and Jimmy Reed and Buster Brown. I couldn't wait for for him to get there the night we play with him because... I was already playing harmonica, and uh, there's a note that he hits on on the beginning of the solo in Fannie Mae. I couldn't find it anywhere on the harmonica. <laughs> I asked him, you know, how he played that, and he showed me he hollered that first note. That's funny. So it's uh, it's not on the harmonica. It's not on the harmonica. It was him hollering it. That's interesting. So you guys are doing that, and I suppose you're you're getting good. I I, I imagine that uh, that uh, you're you're one of the the bigger bands in the Fort Worth area. Is that right? Well, yeah. You gotta you gotta once again put it in perspective. Uh, how many rock and roll bands were there then? You know, this was this was when everybody was just learning to play rock and roll music. 
you know, and up until then it had been country bands and the beer joints are are uh, cocktail trios, you know, playing all the classics. So being in a band was. I remember when we uh, tried to, when when I got married for the first time. Go down. We go down and try to get the appliances turned on. When you put down musician, <laughs> you had to you had to put up the first and the last month's deposit. It might still be that way. It's, it probably is. I mean, you know, working in a bar band is you don't make any money. And uh, my wife was working at the gas company, and I was uh, working a day job uh, doing anything I could do. I mean, this was by the time I got to be 20, you know. Uh, let me remind folks, Delbert McClinton is our guest, and the book is called One of the Fortunate Few by Diane Finley Hendricks, and it tells all of these stories in uh, in detail. Jack burns down, the band moves to a place called the Skyliner. It sounds like a very wild scene there, and there's uh, there's some description of sort of the underworld scene that uh, uh, there's just a tons of bars, it sounds like. In the 50s, Fort Worth, it was uh, gangland, low-life a lot of pimps and whores and thieves and gangsters. A lot of car bombings killing people. And and it was just uh it was a, a haven of 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 low echelon gun carrying characters. And they were uh, the people that came out to hear us in the beer joints. So uh I knew all of the gangsters, the whores, the pimps the thieves, and that's uh, that's the way it was. So you're playing at the Skyliner and the wild scene there, and you're doing some recording locally, and uh, in 1962, uh, you get to play on Bruce Chanel's Hey Baby. Now, uh, the story in the book basically says that you, you just met that guy that day, he showed you the yeah. song on acoustic guitar, and you guys just basically fell in with the arrangement that we hear on the record, went number one in 1962. Uh, I assume it was one of those things where everybody knew right away this was going to be a huge record. Well, we did, everybody except uh, Major Bill Smith, who was the one that paid. He was the only guy in town, and he was, uh, uh, he was a, a retired Air Force major, who at the time I met him uh, was retired, and he was a wholesale meat salesman. And he also kind of fancied himself as a uh, Colonel Tom Parker kind of guy. Real blusterous, uh, red-faced. He always, he never talked without it all being just, you know, uh, just wild, you know. And, And he was the only guy in town that was recording anybody. And so... Of course, I, I, I got to know him, and uh, he would call me to get players together for these people he would bring in. And nine times out of ten, that was terrible, ter- terrible people that he brought in to record. But this particular night, it was uh, it was Bruce Chanel. Uh, we made five dollars a song for recording, but uh, Bruce Chanel came in and. Uh, he played "Hey Baby" and uh, we recorded. We I mean, it's an easy song to learn. We learned it uh, and we recorded it maybe three times, uh, maybe not that many. We we just kind of did it, you know. 
know, I he started playing it, and I just started playing the harmonica part. Kind of, you know, that was what I heard to do in it. And uh, in no time, we had it recorded, you know, and, and uh, Major Bill thought uh, one of the other songs was going to be the hit, which was Dream Girl, which was the flip side of Hey Baby on the 45. Of course, it wasn't. It was, and we told him that night, it says, Hey Baby's the hit, without a doubt. But he didn't believe that until he, his his nemesis in Houston, uh, Huey Moe, they were always trying to one-up each other on, on having an artist. He played it for Huey Moe, and Huey Moe offered him $500 for half of it. And that's when Major felt like he had a hit, because if, if Huey wanted it, he bounced it off of Huey because he he knew that Huey had a better ear than he did. And he did. So uh, we, we heard Tina coming in, into the... This our chat this morning, uh, 1963. I mentioned uh, co-written by uh, you and produced by Major Bill Smith. Um, Major Bill Smith had nothing to do with the production of anything. He just paid for the session. Gotcha. So he was not even in the room. Well, he was. You know, he was in the room, and he took credit for everything that happened. <laughs> and he also stole the publishing on everything that we we had. You know. So, you know, it was the same old story that was going on everywhere. Sign this. It's just a standard contract. Yeah, well, you sign your publishing away, and uh, and they, he, he, he would never tell you that. And those, those guys would never tell you that. You know, I, one of the things I'm noticing about a lot of these records, they're acoustic-based, but I'm imagining that your band was not playing acoustic guitars live, or were they? No, it wasn't. At that time, we were kind of trying to—I was kind of trying to write Beatlesque songs. Because uh, that's that's what was going on. I was saying earlier that uh, I I first became aware of these on a CD that I bought a few years ago, and these records have all sort of come out, um, some of them multiple times on different CDs, some of them with the wrong credits or the wrong, some of them are just credited uh, to you, because of course you've become real well known over the years, and I guess some whoever owns the masters now is uh, trying to um, cash in on this. Do, do you still keep in touch with the R&E, the guys from the Rondells still around? They're all dead. Everyone of I was looking through some pictures last week at home. My, my daughter brought down these chests, uh, two chests from the attic that that I have saved stuff in forever. And she brought them down because she wanted me to look through them. And uh, there's this promo picture of the Rondells. And uh, every one of them are dead. But me. Well, that's kind of spooky. <laughs> the last one died about two and a half, maybe three years ago. The rest of Because the title of the book is One of the Fortunate Few, and I suppose, uh, I suppose that that's true when you, when you think about this. Listening to all these old records, I love them, and I think that, uh, you know, I wish there was sort of a... I'm surprised that none of these sort of made it out of Texas, you know? Well, they hardly made it out of town. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's well. We're, they're alive right here on WFMU. I'll tell you. Um, Delbert McClinton is our guest in the book. If you want to hear the rest of his life story, it's all in this book. And uh, Diane Finlay Hendricks is the author, and uh, it's just come out a, a few days ago. So folks can uh, can can pick it up. What's the best website uh, if folks want to track you down? Uh, well, Delbert dot com. Uh, we'll probably uh, get you more information than you want. <laughs>
Uh, there's some other stuff on um, on some of the on some of the CDs that I've never seen on a record otherwise, uh, and I'm thinking uh, the song "Lost in a Dream." Do you know this one? Sure. Where is that from? I mean, what is what That's era? A, it, uh, it was a Buster Brown song. But your recording of it, when? What era is that from? Well, that's from about uh, 1960. 1960. Uh, let me let me let me think a minute. Well, I, you know, I I can't tell you exactly the date, but if you find out when Fannie Mae came out, it was within a year of that. Yeah, is that you singing lead? Uh, that's Ronnie Kelly. Ronnie Kelly, and it's you playing the harmonica. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and who's playing drums on this? Because the drums are just crazy swinging on this. I don't remember which drummer was. The, you know, these characters changed every few weeks. <laughs> yeah, this is a great record because it has a little bit of like a Texas thing. It has the blues thing in it. You know, it has uh, like uh, so many of your records. There's like a little bit of country, a little bit of blues, a little bit of Texas. And uh, it's super interesting. I think I want to let's hear this one and uh, that'll wrap this up. Uh, Delbert McClinton, it's been, uh, been a pleasure talking and hearing these great records. Let's hear Lost in a Dream. And thanks very much. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I've. I wouldn't have thought of these songs forever. <laughs> hook record there i think his uh ron kelly's voice there sounds a little bit like uh 
um, David Hidalgo from Los Lobos. Uh, just there's so many good things about that, <laughs> about why that record's so hot. We heard the Buster Brown version a few weeks ago, uh, also amazing, but uh, there's something where that that just is just out of the starting gate boom you know what i mean uh if you want to hear like i said the rest of delbert's life story it's all in this book called one of the fortunate few and there's a link to delbert's website now on the playlist for today's program you can find that over wfmu.org slash michael don't forget frank allen of the searchers who was on our show about 10 years ago will be returning february 10th Yeah, that wraps up a big set there of Bruce Chanel music. Mr. Bus Driver, man, I love that song. That may be my favorite Bruce Chanel song. I guess we can ask Bruce about it. He joins us right now on the telephone. Bruce Chanel, welcome to the program. How are you? Fine. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, great to hear that music. But <laughs> Well, it uh, surprised me. I was listening to it playing. I hadn't heard it in a long time. That was a good band. I, they were really cranking. Yeah, they're really cranking. And that, there's kind of that real percussive keyboards on that record that are it's kind of real unusual. It sounds great. Yeah, I did that in uh, 68 in Tyler, Texas. Uh, Dale Hawkins, you remember the record Susie Q? Sure, oh, of course. Susie Q. Dale was a singer on that, uh, and he became a record producer later. So when I was uh, still living around the Dallas area, Dale called uh, one day and said, I'd like to talk to you about making some records. So we got together, and he had a friend named Wayne Carson Thompson who wrote that song. Wayne also wrote uh, Always On My Mind. and uh, He wrote Soul Deep, which we just heard. Soul in, Deep. The letter. letter. He wrote the letter. Yeah, it's quite a little community of guys who... Uh, all make this great sort of music that's kind of slightly country, slightly soulful, and I put you right in that that pack of guys there. Well, it's a it's a hard place to put anybody in. Uh, you know, Delbert McClinton is uh, the guy that played harmonica mm-hmm. on Hey Baby. Delbert has a great band and still travels the world, and uh, it's just a great blues band and everything, you know. So, Well, you're born in a place called Jacksonville, Texas, which I looked on a map. It looks like it's right between Shreveport, Louisiana, and Dallas, Texas. Is is that geographical location important to the Bruce Chanel sound? Well, I don't, I don't know if it is or not. In the early years when I lived down that part of the country, a little fella, when we would listen to the radio, it was mostly country music at that time. Of course, you'd get the national programs that had orchestras and things like that, but our main input was probably a local country station, you know. Did your folks listen to music? Did they play music in your house? Oh, yeah, we loved music. My mother would always be going around the house singing, and uh, always a gospel song sometime usually, but she was always singing, doing her jobs, and uh, I always remember that. And my dad played harmonica and uh, entertained us, you know, and that, he wasn't a professional musician, but... He uh, could play pretty good. You so know. you were a teenager in the 1950s. Uh, when's the first time you heard rock and roll? Well, it's 1953. We were living in Dallas. My dad, uh, we left uh, East Texas from Jacksonville and moved to Longview, Texas, uh, which is in the same geographical area in East Texas. And then uh, in the war years, in uh, World War II, my dad was moved to Grand Prairie, which is a, kind of a suburb of Dallas, Texas. And uh, we lived with an aunt there in Dallas while my dad was a, uh, trained as a machinist and worked at Chance Vought Aircraft at Grand Prairie. So that's the reason we moved there. And then 
after the war, uh, my dad got into contracting, and uh, we built the house that we lived in there in Dallas. Uh, and then uh, from there, he uh, started growing. The town got too big, you know, and they, he liked a small town atmosphere, so he moved us to Grapevine, Texas, which is DFW Airport now. But uh, that was all farmland, and uh, 1,400 people lived in that community, and that's where I grew up as a teenager. We moved there in the summer of 1954. And what was that? What was the music scene like? What was high school like? You know, were kids going crazy with rock and roll? Oh, we loved it, man. You bet. I couldn't wait to get home and watch the Dick Clark American Bandstand. <laughs> you know, he'd have Frankie Lyman and his teenagers or somebody on, and it'd be great. And uh, we loved the uh, R&B music. We'd play a lot of it at our dances and stuff like that, Fast Domino and those people. Uh, when did you start playing the guitar yourself? Uh, when I was actually about five. My uh, cousin, Snooky Rollinson, had come to live with us. And Snooky was about 21 at the time, I guess, and I was about five, and he played guitar. So my dad wangled a, a guitar from a barber he was doing some work with, contracting, and... Uh, part payment he gave him this old big beautiful blonde Stella guitar and uh, he brought it home and we bought new strings for it and my cousin tuned it up and we my brother John and I learned to play on that he showed us and when did you start writing songs uh, I guess I've always been trying to write them because uh, to learn the newest songs on the radio you know that's about the only outlet you had to hear the music was on the radio but I could go to the drugstore where I could buy black diamond guitar strings, uh, just one if I needed it, uh, and it cost a dime. You could get an E string. That's usually the one that would break, <laughs> that little E string. Still, so, still and is. And they had uh, uh, magazines on the rack, you know, um, um, Hill and Range and all those different type of country and western songbook magazines. Mm-hmm. And they'd have pictures of the, some of the artists and the writers, and then printed on the page would be the songs that they were playing on the radio. So that's how I would learn a lot of the songs I like. But it took me, I, I, they taught me G, C, and D, and then it took me, you know, a few years to work my way around to do a whole song using those chords, you know. Mm. But uh, eventually I learned to play, and, you know. And did you, rhythm. were you in a band in high school in those years? Uh, yeah, we'd always have some kind of little band, you know. I mean, even in grade school, I'd take my guitar, you know, and we'd have uh, uh, variety shows, and I'd get to play a song, you know, and I used to sing Y'all Come by Arlie Dove, which was an old country song, you know. Sure. But I'd, I'd do whatever the popular song was. I'd try to get the newest one I could to play for them, you know. And and when did you when did this when did you think, well, this might be a profession for me. This might be how I make my living. I'd always kind of wanted to. That was in my mind, but I had no real expectation that that was really going to happen. When I was in high school, I'd, I'd still kind of freelance around, and, and I had a friend, Daryl Hawkins, who played drums, and another friend, Chester Harwell, that played uh, saxophone with us, you know, baritone sax. <laughs> so we had a rhythm guitar, a drum set, and a baritone sax. <laughs> We would make music and people would dance to it and have fun, you know. Yeah. So I was always casting around, going to different places, looking for gigs, get hired by a band here to sing and there, you know. And I got one gig with the band to do a New Year's at the Adolphus Hotel in Dallas, and they paid me two hundred dollars. I couldn't believe it. Two hundred mm. bucks, man. That's a, that's still a lot of money. <laughs> well, my teacher didn't believe it either. Uh, Miss Hemley was trying to discourage me because in the variety shows. My little band and I, we would play on the variety show, and of course the kids liked it because we were one of them, you know, and we were doing the music that reflected how they felt. 
So as bad as it sounded and as bad as it was delivered, they loved it and they'd go nuts, you know? <laughs> so we were having a good time doing that, and we thought we were rock and rollers, you know? Mm. And uh, just try, knew all the popular songs of the day and that kind of thing. We'd call the radio stations KNOK in Fort Worth, and we had a disc jockey that would play a Carl Perkins record, Blue Suede Shoes, for us. We'd call him in the morning before we'd go to school and say, now, please... Play that before the 8.30 bell because we'll have to go in. <laughs> and he'd always put it on about 8.20 for us. We'd get to hear Blue Suede Shoes with old Carl. That's a nice way to start the day. Oh, yeah, man. Before you're incarcerated in, in high school. <laughs> uh, so what was your first big break? How, did you get onto the Louisiana Hayride radio show? Yeah, I'd, at about, uh, let's see, I must have been about, I guess, 17, I'm thinking, uh, going on 18. And my dad said, had asked me one day, he said, have you ever considered maybe trying to get on a the Louisiana Hayride. And I said, well, yeah, but <clears throat> this old guitar, it was still the old Stella Classics at that time, and we had made an electric out of it, and it had blood on it from us, <laughs> and it's so hard and all night long, you know, and I said, I, but I don't have a good instrument to do a show like that. You'd have to show up with something nice. And He brought out a new Gibson J200, that big jumbo. And wow. Leather case, and said, well, I got you a guitar. You still have that one? I still have it. Oh, that's, that's one nice. I wrote uh, co-wrote Hey Baby on and all the music that I've worked on. That's great. And so what would you do? Just go over there for an, for an audition? No, my dad and my mom said, let's take a ride down to Streetport uh, this weekend. So we got up early Saturday morning and it's about like a three and a half hour drive, something like that. So we drove to Streetport and went to the radio station, KWKH, and he found some people there and it happened Tillman Franks who managed the Louisiana Hayride was at the studio that day with an engineer named Bob Sullivan. So uh, my dad talked with him, and uh, he said, well, he was pretty busy, but he'd try to find time to listen to me. So we waited there for a good while, and he came out in the hallway, and my dad said, uh, have you got time to listen to Bruce? And he said, yeah, y'all coming in my office. So we went in and sat down and pulled out my guitar, you know, and, and I sang for him, and he liked it and asked me to sing some more, so I sang about an hour. Wow. And he said, well, I really like that. He said, have you got anything to wear on the show tonight? And I said, well, I always <laughs> have my jacket with me <laughs> in case you get a chance. So uh, I had this kind of gold May jacket with the velvet lapels and stuff, you know. And folks don't know, everybody doesn't know what the Louisiana Hayride was. It was sort of a, a Louisiana version of the Grand Ole Opry, is that right? That's exactly what it was. And there was a barn dance in Wheeling, West Virginia, which I did not play. But there were shows like that over the country, but the Grand Ole Opry was the pinnacle, and the Louisiana Hayride um, was served by the same stars that played the Opry. Yeah, and who else, what kind of other kind of folks were on that show that first night, do you remember? Uh, well, Johnny Horton, mm-hmm. uh, Tillman Franks was his manager, uh, the guy who signed me, and I met Johnny Horton that night, and uh, Country Johnny Mathis, and uh, Tex Ritter was on, not the first night, but Tex Ritter did a show there one time, and which was kind of fun, and uh, just to whoever the hot stars were at the time, you know, they would come there. You know, Johnny Cash had played there, uh, Ray Price. All your great stars came and played during the 50s, you know. Yeah, it must have been something. Oh, it was great. And I got to meet all those people, and they paid me $16.50 a week, <laughs> of which I paid a dollar and a half union dues, and the round-trip train ticket that I started making was $11.66. <laughs> 
So I'd get home with probably with 50 cents or a dollar, but I got to meet a lot of people, and I got to be on a big show. You know? That's amazing. Well, did, did, did that, uh, you know, you always hear that this idea, especially with the Opry, that folks, once they signed on to the Opry, they, they kind of had to every Saturday night be back in Nashville, so they would make these mad trips, you know, get as far away as they could to to play some gigs because of their popularity from appearing on the radio. But then they'd have to dash back, kind of a double-edged sword there. Yeah, and the old roads weren't that good back then. You know, you yeah. had two-lane highways, and when you got off of that, you were in ruts. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't an easy go to be an entertainer and make all those big jumps. So did you hit the road that young in age, 18 years old? Yeah, I, I was uh, on the road with the Louisiana Hayride show, and we we made uh, several shows outside Shreveport, you know. <laughs> and, and that was a lot of fun, working with those guys and Tilman Franks. And what was what I, the reason I mentioned Bob Sullivan as the engineer a while ago, years later now in Fort Worth after that, I, when I came in with Bill Smith to do those two songs I had written with Devin McClinton and his band, I did uh, Dream Girl and I did Hey Baby. And uh, the engineer on that session was Bob Sullivan. So Sully was the engineer from Shreveport at the Hayride. When we uh, came to Fort Worth to record that song, I hadn't seen him since the Hayride. Mm. Uh You wrote Hey Baby with a person called Margaret Cobb, or at least that's what the, the record says. Yeah, Margaret was a friend of mine, and uh, she's a little older than me, but she could already uh, kind of put songs together and that had good ideas, and, and we'd hang out together. And we were introduced uh, by her brother, whom I worked with. And was it, did it take uh, an afternoon to write, or was it a torture session of weeks on end? How, how quick did he no, baby... that little old song fell out probably in about 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> That's it, a lot of people say that about songs, but they do, and... And in my estimation, they're just gifts, you know. I, hmm. I, I haven't been able to write one like that since. I've written lots of songs, and I've had some hit songs. And I made a good living in the music business as a writer. But uh, that little song just came out of nowhere and zipped into the, you know, the etherics. So <laughs> It was I just out no there, idea. and you just roped it in. That's real interesting. Uh, so you had this song, and I imagine audiences were, were really eating that up. Oh, hey, baby. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was working. A friend had hired me to sing with a group called the Light Crust Doughboys, mm-hmm. who were uh, sponsored by a flour mill in Texas, Light Crust Flour, and we'd do store openings and that kind of thing. And uh, the original band for this uh, operation was Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. So it's a it's an old traditional band that's been around forever, and it may still be one working. I don't know for sure. But Marvin has uh, since passed away, and a lot of the people, so it may not be. But Marvin was my manager and helped me a lot. You know, he's musically really good in the studio and played piano. He was a great banjoist and just a great musician. And uh, he helped me through a lot of rough spots with the music and in the studio. So how did you get from uh, having this great song and being on the hayride to recording? Well, it it just I just kept kind of working at it. I, of course, I had uh, recorded some things for a little label called Blue Bonnet out of Fort Worth, one called Ro- Run Romance Run, which was just a little old teeny song, you know. But uh, I'd been trying to record and uh, wanted to record. I knew that that was the only way that you could get heard was to get a record and be on the radio, you know. Mm. So through many trials and errors, uh, you finally just stumble into one. Let's talk about this guy, Major Bill Smith. Uh who who was he, and, and where where did he come from? 
Uh, Bill was from Oklahoma originally, but he lived in Texas, and uh, he was a um, at the time, and he was a retired major in the Air Force. And he was always interested in music. He couldn't play an instrument. He couldn't really sing you a song. But he could hear when things came together, and he had an ear for what he thought could make work. So uh, he would just always have the studio book with uh, Delbert McClinton and his band, or some band, or some artist that he had heard sing, or some singer. He'd always have a session and try to do a record on them. He'd pack his little uh, Carver car with his records, that he'd get pressed and he'd take in a five-state area around Texas and deliver them to every radio station he could get to. Hmm. So just the real old-fashioned producer-promoter type of guy. Yeah, just old shoe leather and sweat. <laughs> so did is he the producer of the record of Hey Baby? He produced Hey Baby, and uh, he and Marvin Montgomery, the fellow I was telling you about that helped with the music, mm-hmm. he helped Bill with the studio sessions. And the day that we did Hey Baby... I came in with my guitar, and I showed Delbert and the band how it went, you know. So uh, Sully had set up the mics and things like that, Bob Sullivan, and gone back in the studio, and so we were ready to play it, and the guys thought they knew it. So we played it through one time, and they said, well, that sounds pretty good, but uh, let's try it one more time now. So we cut it, uh, sang it again, and uh, Delbert then played it again, and it sounded and felt good, and they said, well, that's pretty good, but Marvin said, I think it needs a piano. So he came in the studio with us and played the piano on it. Hmm. And we recorded again, and that third time was the one that they kept. And so that record we hear is 100% live? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We did it all at one time. There were no overdubs, no layers, no nothing. You walked in, put it down, you were through. Yeah. And, okay, did everyone go back in the control room and have a listen? Oh, yeah. And what did you think? Yeah, the third time we did it, they said, that sounds good, let's listen to it. So we all went in the studio and... Listen, and it, it sounded like the best record I've ever, ever been on. You know? <laughs> so you knew right away? No, you just knew that it sounded good, uh-huh. and you hoped that it would be a hit, but nobody would think it was a hit. He called a friend of his who did the same kind of thing that Bill Smith was into, and the mage asked him, uh, Danny Wolf. he said, uh, played it to him on the phone out of the studio, you know, and said, how do you like that, you cotton picker? Everybody's <laughs> a cotton picker, Major Bill. It's a cotton pick and smash. Everything you do, you know. It's a real upbeat guy. How do you like that, you cotton picker? He said, and he said, oh, I like that a lot. And he said, well, do you like it $500 worth? And Danny said, no, I don't know if I like it that much. <laughs> so Bill said, okay, you cotton picker. It's a hit. He was trying to get some promotion money, you know. Mm. What was so he had it pressed up, put it in his car, and went to work, you know. And it took a little while for it to catch fire. Yeah, it was only played uh, locally in, in some different areas. And then uh, in Fort Worth, I believe it was KFJZ, I'm not sure, but I think that's who it was. They would have a battle of the songs each week, hmm. and uh, kids would call in and vote for the one they liked best. Is it like the one that they'd played before, or do you like this one best? And it was that kind of thing, and they'd add a new record every week, you know. And uh, so it came down to... If you win the whole week, then they'll put you on their playlist. You get played every hour. Mm. So I was up against, uh, Hey Baby, rather, was up against a little bitty tear, Let Me Down, and a Burl Ives record. And so uh, they called in and said, well, we have a winner. It's a little bitty tear. And the station told me later, said that switchboard just flew open, you know, (laughs) with the lights coming on. It said, no. You better have a recount. <laughs> we did not vote for that against a baby. We like that baby. 
So they did recount. They said, I'm sorry we did make a mistake. You know? <laughs> but anyway, so we made it to number one on their Battle of the Songs thing. So it went into rotation at number 30, I guess, the top 30. And they'd play it, I think, every hour. That's like that. So from there, it started going. Then it got up in the top 10 of their chart, local chart. And the other stations had started adding it to theirs by then. Uh, KLIF in Dallas, KILT in Houston, and, you know, some big stations started playing it. And we were, uh, Bill Smith and I, going around to stations, doing promo and trying to get it played at different places. And we went to Houston. KILT was playing it. As we drove up in front of the Rice Hotel where we were going to stay in his little Corvair, <laughs> they announced on the radio, said, now here's our new number one record in all of Houston, Texas at KILT. Here's Hey Baby Boy, and I jumped up, hit my head <laughs> on the top of his car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was excited. Amazing. Number we're, one record, man. Yeah, we're talking to Bruce Chanel here. Uh, the record got picked up by the Smash label and was number one all across the U.S. for three weeks, a number one record in 1962. That is an amazing feat. And it was also number one in the U.K. as well. Well, actually, it was number two. I couldn't oh, yeah? tell you what was number <laughs> one, but something edged it out right at the last minute in England, so it was known as a number two. Over. All right. Well, still not bad. Uh, were you doing stuff like Ed Sullivan and all those TV shows and Dick Clark, which you were, you know, just a few years ago watching that same stuff? Yeah, uh, Dick Clark had me on his show, uh, and, and I enjoyed meeting him. He's a super nice fella, and uh, he was in Philadelphia at that time. Right. I did it again, 68, I did Bus Driver, this record you played. Right. Uh, I did that on his show after he moved to California. He called me and asked me to come out there. He wanted to see what I was doing. Of course, uh, you're you know it's real well documented. You you went on a big tour of the UK, and I think uh, you went with Delbert and uh, played on some bills with the Beatles. Yeah, um, in '62, of course, they didn't have any records out till '64. They had done a few things, but not as the Beatles, and weren't doing their own material. They're doing a lot of cover stuff. Um, but I had just finished a tour with the Fast Domino and Brooke Benton and Gene Chandler and, you know, the Duke of Earl and, mm. and a lot of those people. I did a month from New York City to Houston, Texas. And uh, then we were scheduled to go to England. Uh, and I did that with Fats and them in May. So it had been in, in June, I think it was, we went to England. And uh, the Beatles played on some shows with us there. Uh, you're just a, uh, still a kid, really, from West Texas. Was going to the U.K. a little bit of a mind-blowing situation? Oh, yeah, totally, because I, the only thing I remember about England was stuff like in Grimm's fairy tales or something. <laughs> I didn't know anything about what England was, you know. <laughs> right, you expect it to be like a Charles Dickens novel. Oh, yeah, novel. everything was a big castle, you know, with all the moats <laughs> and all that thing. And it turned out that there are still some, but <laughs> it was different from what I thought it would be. That's and nasty, you know, uh, Delbert and I both 21 at the time, and we were having a good time, and it was great, but after a couple of weeks, we got kind of homesick. Mm. There's a great documentary about uh, John Lennon's jukebox. He had this jukebox, which is like just the size of a suitcase. I wish I had one. It's like the coolest little machine, and it had a bunch of 45s in it. And uh, I guess somebody found this, and they did a documentary about all the different songs in his jukebox, and one of them is Hey Baby. And uh, it's you and yeah, those people came and interviewed us about that, and uh, Delbert and I are in that documentary where they're talking about the different songs he liked. Yeah, really interesting documentary. 
Yeah, he'd make up a little card and write the name of the artist <laughs> and the song and put it in just like you would in a jukebox. Yes, yeah, in his own handwriting. It's really cool. Uh, and there's, you know, everyone has often said that perhaps uh, Delbert's harmonica playing on Hey Baby and that John saw during that tour, he was already playing the harmonica, I think, but it inspired him in some ways in his harmonica playing. You think that's true? Uh, of course I do, because uh, uh, John admitted it himself on some documentary tape that I hear once in a while. He says, uh, you know, they had asked him about those times, and he was doing, uh, you know, they were doing cover songs, and he'd pick songs that he liked, and he said well, they were doing Bruce Chanel's Hey Baby, and uh, Delma Clinton's harmonica influenced him because he had asked Delbert to play for him in the dressing room on a couple of those shows. Mm. And um, Delbert would play for him, and he said, I really like that sound. I want to use that sometime. And John's way of writing, uh, so it was, I found out later, part of it anyway, was that he'd find a song that he liked and he'd keep doing it and then changing it until he wrote something new that was like that. Hmm. But it wouldn't be that song. It'd be a different song when he got through. So Love Me Do was the one that he kind of twisted around and got the harmonica that he could play on. Yeah, I can definitely hear that. Uh, so you had, I mean, it sounds like fun, and it's nice that you're still friends with Delbert McClinton and still friends with, with, with a bunch of those guys from that, that era. Well, you know, they they were great, and uh, all those talented people, I was just uh, thrilled to be a part of it, and just to stand and watch them do their talent every night was amazing to me, you know. You get to stand in the wings and watch people like Roy Orbison and Fast Domino, and, you know, these are your heroes. Yeah, those package shows always sound like <laughs> like a dream come true, really, just to... To get to see all that and be a part of that. Uh, there's a great record, uh, I think it's 68, Keep On. I think that was another top 40, and also produced by Dale Hawkins and Mr. Bus Driver, my favorite. And then your records sort of taper off for a while. Uh, I think you moved to Nashville around 1975. What happened between 1968 and 1975? Uh, my wa- I met Christine, my wife, in England mm-hmm. in 68. And then um, we came back to Texas and built a home there. And uh, we lived there for about, oh, I guess three or four years, something like that. <clears throat> and I just took a job at the Parks and Recreation Department in Grapevine. I just kind of worn down with, uh, you know, fighting the music thing all the time. Yeah. And I'm not a guy that thrives well on the road. After about 30 years of it, I kind of wore down on it. <laughs> it's not that exciting anymore. Yeah. Um, but um, so a friend of mine wrote, uh, you picked a fine time to leave me Lucille. You, I don't know if you remember that. Sure, of course, yeah. Hal Bynum came to Fort Worth and uh, gave me a call, and he says, uh, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're just, you know, living here in, back in Grapevine. We live, like being back at home. He said, well, you ought to come to Nashville. I think you could do good there. So that next day, uh, see, in 78, Christine and I moved to Nashville, and then I wrote, uh, I started writing songs, you know, meeting a lot of friends here. And, Ed and wrote some songs and took them to different people at Tree Publishing, mainly, with Don Gant. Uh, was running Tree at the time, and I uh, had friends that wrote there, and Hal wrote there, and Sonny Throckmorton and some people. So I took them a song called Party Time, and uh, Buddy Killen owned the company, really liked it, and uh, he got T.G. Shepard to record it and had a number one record with them. Right. You had some big hits, Alabama, Mel McDaniel, Janie Fricky, a lot, I mean, a lot yeah. of big, big country artists have cut your songs, and it, it's a real... The country music writing thing is such a strange little community. I mean, there's a million writers in Nashville. Is that just, do you worry about that when you're writing a song? No, you know, not really, because there, there's a million writers, but there's only probably about 50 songs. 
<laughs> and uh, if you got a chance that you can you can ride with uh, those people, but I don't really worry about that whether they're going to cut it or not, you know, because if it's a hit, you got to ride another one anyway. If it's not a hit, you got to ride another one anyway. <laughs> so it's uh, a rider's only defense is to ride. Yeah. So uh, I do that two or three times a week, and we have I got you know like forty or fifty songs that uh, nobody's heard because it's it's really hard to get through the veneer of the music business anymore. Yeah. And besides, uh, it's always been a, a younger person's game, and I'm sixty-seven, so I'm not going to go on the stage and try to you know outdo some kid that's really good. I mean. You just do what you do, and I'm I'm glad they have their talent, and I think the music's moving on. It's great, but I think I came up at a great time in the music business, and I love being able to to be with my heroes and get to see them work, you know, and have such a good time at it. And it's just been just a great run. Mm. In 1987, uh, Hey Baby was on the soundtrack for the the movie Dirty Dancing, which sold I think about 12 million copies. Uh, at that time, it, it sure did, and uh, it's now in a stage play that's been going for about three years in London, oh. and uh, another one in Australia, and one in Hong Kong. The lady that wrote that movie wrote the play for the stage. It's the same story, actually, but she didn't want to stage it on Broadway or go off Broadway. She wanted to do something totally different, so she got the people that did the uh, John Travolta, uh, I think it's Greece, maybe, in Australia, to mount it for her. And it worked out really great, so they're just having a great time with the stage play of it now. So, yeah, every time you turn around something, <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm certainly grateful that people love Hey Baby. And People always talk about hold on to your publishing. Did you manage to do that with Hey Baby? Oh, gosh, no. We started back <laughs> in the archaic days when the publishing was just a word that was whispered amongst those people that did that. Mm. You know? uh, but it, it, I do have my full writer's part, and Margaret has since deceased, but her two sons get their part of the song, and they're paid by the company, you know, by so, uh, Universal, yeah. whoever it is. So a full writer's part means, I guess, you get so a 25... So gets half, the writers yeah. get half a song. So you do okay. That must be a nice little Christmas gift every once in a while. Oh, brother, it's got me more bacon and beans than <laughs> you can believe. <laughs> that little 20 minutes of uh, <laughs> of work, well, that's a, a good return. Uh You've got a you made a you made a, a record by uh, with a band called Original Copy that was you and Larry Henley the the guy from the New Beats the the high voice right yeah and and Larry wrote Wind Beneath My Wing right and uh, Shotgun Rider and a lot of great songs yeah a lot of great guys have moved to Nashville guys from the sixties and, and just keep keep writing songs well Larry's been living here I guess since the sixties he moved here in the early sixties from uh, West Texas uh, and he had the the New Beats group you know and they were doing great. Uh, in the 60s, he stayed here as a writer, and it's already worked out well for him, too. And we worked together a lot with a friend named Ricky Ray Rector. And I think he might be hearing from old Ricky Ray one day. He's just kind of a genius little guy <laughs> and do that you, can uh, really play and sing, you know. Bruce, do you get a chance to get out and perform much, or just that itch is not there anymore? No, I do, yeah, sure. I, I, I go out and play and do gigs. Uh, as long as I'm able, I'll go do one here and there. I just don't like to book it two years ahead of time. <laughs> Uh, I don't like to do that, but I do like to do gigs, and I got several that I do through the year. Like in uh, the first week in April, I always go to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, for the Kiwanis Club up there, and I used to go do uh, some in Dallas for Cliff Harris, the ex-Dallas Cowboy. I've done a charity show f- uh, for them, you know, a songwriter show along with other songwriters. Mm-hmm. Is normally the way that works, but they enjoy just hearing the songs and the people that wrote them, you know. And I do them for Bum Phillips once in a while. 
famous old uh, NFL coach, a good buddy of mine. And so some of these things I do, and I've, there's probably about, uh, I don't know, eight or ten of those things through the year. So what? let me ask you this. What kind of music do you listen to when you're just driving to the supermarket, just, just trying to enjoy yourself? I, I, I listen to oldies, and then I'll punch through different decades to see what's going on uh, with people. I, I listen to, uh, you know, whatever's uh, current now as much as I can through CMT or whatever. Hmm. But um, I... I I just kind of let it float through and go out. I still like, uh, you know, the old sounds and like that, you know. Yeah, tell me the title of the last song you wrote. The title of the last song that I wrote? Uh, I haven't wrote, written the last one yet, but <laughs> I hope. <laughs> That's right. Okay, perfect answer. Well, we've got to wrap this up, and I've got Hey Baby uh, queued up here. It really is a great record that... It's the kind of record you just can hear over and over forever, kind of timeless. Anything else we need to know about the recording or the writing or or this record? Well, I, I, I'm just amazed that people still remember and like it and buy it, and uh, it's just been something great for me. And thank you, folks. I couldn't thank you enough. And, Michael, thank you. Uh, without you, these things wouldn't happen, and I... We wouldn't get the recognition and the songs and that kind of thing. So I really do appreciate it. Now, Bruce Chanel, it's uh, totally our pleasure. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Take care, Michael. Bye-bye. Yeah.